Hi, this is Hani and Whitney at Duke Plastic Surgery Residence with the Resident Review. And today we'll be talking to you about maxillofacial injuries. So to get started, let's talk about some general trauma principles. There is a high risk of mortality in older patients and patients with longer hospital stays and patients with more severe injuries, patients with higher incidence of mid-facial fractures and patients with orbital and condylar fractures. There is also a higher incidence of non-facial trauma when you have maxillofacial trauma. Now, there are five criteria that are predictive of facial fracture. One is a GCS less than 14. One is malocclusion. One is step-offs. One is periorbital swelling or contusion. And one is a tooth absence. And just something to think about, in massive nasal or oral hemorrhage, it is really important to intubate the patient and secure the airway as well as uh, put in some packing, either anterior or posterior nasal packing to stop the bleed. Now, moving on to soft tissue injuries, let's talk about the scalp. From In terms of layers, from superficial to deep, there's the skin, there's connective tissue layer, there's the galia, there's a loose areolar plane, and there's a pericranium. I think we've all gotten pimped on scalp layers as sub-eyes, so this is definitely review. But of note, for avulsions of the scalp, it typically they typically occur in the loose areolar plane. When suturing the scalp back together, the galia is the strength layer. Now, moving on from the scalp to the medial eye. So in regards to the medial eye, you usually think about the um, canulicular or nasal lacrimal duct injuries. Now, the diagnosis of this, of a nasal lacrimal duct injury, there's something called the Jones test. And that evaluates lacrimal outflow under normal physiologic conditions. Fluorescein dye is instilled in conjunctival um, cornice dye, and it should be recovered in five minutes by asking the patient to blow their nose. If there's no dye, then you perform a Jones number two test. And with this, you check if there's residual fluorescein flushed out from the conjunctival ask. To do this, you ask the patient to expel drainage from the pharynx, and if there's no dye, that means that there's complete obstruction. Now, treatment for an occluded punctum, you do nasolacrimal duct dilation or stent placement. CDCR. Now, this is performed in cases of flaccid canaliculi with paralysis of the lacrimal pump mechanism and when the site of obstruction is proximal. For a DCR, this is performed in cases of distal obstruction. All right, moving on from the medial eye to the mid-cheek. So in lacerations to the mid-cheek, there's often injury to to stetin's duct. Excuse me. Now, treatment for this, you cannulate and you can close over the stent. You manage with superficial parotidectomy for chronic fistulas. For complications, a sialocele should be managed conservatively with a pressure dressing, limited PO intake, anti-sialogogs, and aspiration of the sialocele. And most of these resolve in two to three weeks. Awesome. Thanks, uh, honey, for that review of uh, facial lacerations. This is pretty common for patients that present with mid-facial bony injuries to also have overlying um, soft tissue injuries. Um, so... Now moving on to some of the bony injuries that present with maxillofacial trauma, we are going to be moving from the top of the head down. So we'll be starting with frontal sinus injuries, Uh, a little bit of anatomy of the frontal sinus. The frontal sinus is actually absent at birth and starts to appear in radiographs around age seven, and then is fully developed by age 15. In terms of regional anatomy, uh, drainage from the frontal sinus occurs through the nasofrontal ducts. And as far as frontal sinus fractures go, uh, it takes a ton of force to fracture the frontal sinus. 
Uh, therefore, frontal sinus fractures carry a 45 to 65% risk of an intracranial injury, such as uh, TBI or intracranial hemorrhage. So now moving on to the management of frontal sinus fractures, um, this really is based on the degree of injury of both the anterior and posterior table of the frontal sinus. So if you think about the frontal sinus, there's an anterior table, which you can feel as your forehead, essentially. Um, there is then a uh, dead space, and then there's the posterior table, which separates your brain from the outside world. So uh, in terms of isolated anterior table fractures, you think about this in terms of whether they're displaced or non-displaced. If you have a non-displaced yeah, isolated anterior table fracture, you can just observe these. If you have a displaced anterior table fracture and the nasofrontal duct is not involved, meaning that you think it's still open and draining, um, you can perform reduction in fixation, but this is mainly just for aesthetic reasons. If you are concerned that the nasofrontal duct is involved or obstructed, you'll perform reduction in fixation of the anterior table with obliteration of the frontal sinus mucosa to prevent a mucus seal. An obliteration procedure uh, involves two steps. One is removal of all the mucosal tissue, generally with a diamond burr, and two is performing an obliteration of this space with either a pericranial flap, cancellous bone, fat, or synthetic bone cement. If you have um, not only an anterior table fracture, but then also a posterior table fracture, your uh, management of these fractures changes a little bit. So in general, just to point out, if you have a posterior table fracture, in general, you've also have an anterior table fracture. So posterior table fractures don't really happen in isolation. So for a posterior table fracture that is non-displaced, your management is based on whether or not you think that there is a CSF leak. So if there is no CSF leak, you can observe the fracture. If there is a CSF leak, you can observe for seven days, uh, place the patient on antibiotics. And if there is no resolution, then you would need to proceed with dural repair and obliteration or cranialization of the frontal sinus. If the posterior table is displaced, regardless of whether or not you observe a CSF leak at initial presentation, the likelihood that there is a CSF leak due to violation of the dura is extremely high. So you treat it as if there is a CSF leak. In patients with a displaced posterior table, if the nasofrontal duct is involved, you perform reduction and stabilization of the anterior table with cranialization versus obliteration of the frontal sinus. And we'll get into what cranialization is in just a second. If the nasofrontal duct is not involved, you can consider just reduction and stabilization of the anterior table. Although this generally doesn't happen in general if the posterior table is displaced, you have to do a dural repair and you assume that um, the nasofrontal duct is involved. So for cranialization, um, this is removal of the posterior table, closure of the dura, obliteration of the sinonasal tract or nasofrontal tract, and obliteration of the sinus mucosa. So essentially what you're doing is you're allowing the brain to swell into the space that was once the frontal sinus um, by removing that posterior table. In terms of complications of frontal sinus fractures, uh, the most common complication or most worrisome complication, since they common, most worrisome complication is a mucus seal. Uh, this occurs in the, if the frontal nasal duct is blocked um, and all the mucosa is not removed, it basically forms a sterile fluid filled cyst that can become infected or become a mucopuriceal. Uh, therefore, patients who have had frontal sinus fractures require annual CT scan uh, for surveillance for um, evaluation of a mucus seal. Thank you, Whitney, for that review. We're going to uh, move on to orbital injuries. And we'll start with a little bit of anatomy. There are seven bones that comprise the orbit, the ethmoid, the frontal bone, the lacrimal bone, the maxilla, 
the palatine bone, and the greater and lesser wings of the sphenoid. The most commonly injured part of the orbit is the medial wall of the orbit. Now, let's talk about the orbital floor. There are indications for emergent repair for orbital floor injuries, and these are important to know. Entrapment of the extraocular muscles is really important. Most commonly entrapped muscle is the inferior rectus. This more commonly occurs in the pediatric population who are more likely to create a trapdoor effect with orbital floor defects. They can present with nausea or vomiting. If operative repair is delayed, it can result in permanent visual deficits. Now, another indication for emergent repair is retrobulbar hematoma, and that's defined as bleeding posterior to the septum, which requires emergent lateral canthotomy for repair to prevent optic nerve injury due to pressure on the nerve. Now, there are absolute indications for repair. Entrapment, what we already talked about, of the inferior rectus, this is emergent. Entrapment with vagal symptoms is also emergent. Um, more than 50% of the floor involvement is uh, an indication for urgent repair. Enophthalmos is also an indication for, for repair, and that's defined as posterior displacement of the globe. This is most commonly caused by an increase in bony orbital volume. Uh, disruption of orbital ligaments can also cause this. So you, you have to make sure that they're intact. Now, more than two millimeters of enophthalmos as measured from the anterior orbit to the lateral rim is an indication for surgery. In fact, I, I just got a question on an in-service uh, about how you measure enophthalmos, and it's important to note that the lateral rim is, is uh, one of the marquee anatomical sites for measuring enophthalmos. Now, anyway, this may not be evident initially due to swelling. Clinically evident enophthalmos presents after 5% increase in volume of the orbit. Now, going back to indications for repair. Persistent diplopia is also an indication for repair, and it's common and should generally be observed as this resolves with time, about 10 to 14 days if there's no entrapment. Treatment of orbital floor fractures. So there are um, a couple of approaches. The transconjunctival approach. The benefits of this approach is that there's no external scar and it can be extended medially through a trancuruncular incision or laterally through a lateral canthotomy. It's also the subciliary approach. And this is just below the lash line. Again, well-hidden scar, but the disadvantage is a potential for an ectropion. Now, there are two approaches with the subciliary approach. There's a skin-only flap above the orbiculus oculi to the infraorbital rim. Now, this has a lots of risk for ectropion and skin necrosis. And then there's a skin muscle flap in which you go into the orbicularis oculi muscle, but make sure to dissect below the pretarsal portion to prevent loss of lid support. And this can be a stepped versus a non-stepped approach. Next, there's a subtarsal approach, which is mid-lid. Now, this is an incision through the lower lid, through the orbicularis, and then down to the rim in the preceptal plane. This is okay for older patients with excess lower lid skin, but the disadvantage is the potential for scar visibility, and it also carries a potential for ectropion. And then there's a rim incision. Now, the benefit is that this has the best exposure, and the disadvantage is that it has poor cosmesis. Now, let's talk a little bit about post-injury and post-operative complications. So one complication is post-traumatic carotid cavernous fistula. And this is an abnormal fistula between the internal carotid and cavernous sinus after a basal or skull fracture. The signs of this are pulsatile proptosis, ocular and orbital erythema and you diagnose it with a cerebral angiogram. Treatment is embolization. Next, there's traumatic neuropathy, and this involves the optic nerve. And the sign is an abnormal pupillary dilation when, the light, when light is shown into the injured eye. 
And let's talk about this a little bit. If the right optic nerve is injured anterior to the optic chiasm, light shown in the left eye will lead to consensual constriction of the pupils. When light is shown into the right eye, there is relative dilation of both eyes. Now, this can also be caused by sheer force injuries of the optic nerve, which is the most common in a trauma setting, and due to central retinal artery occlusion. Going on to nectropion, the definition of this is that the, the lower eyelid scars in an outward position, leading, for, leading to the cornea being exposed and prone to irritation. For treatment, the initial treatment is actually massage, but if that doesn't um, resolve, if, and if it persists for more than six months, it requires operative fixation. There are multiple options for repair, including horizontal shortening of the lower lid, lateral canthoplasty, release of scar tissue and application of a frost suture, or nasal septal cartilage grafting to support the posterior lamella. Finally, another eye injury to know about, uh, a hyphema, which is an urgent consult to ophtho. And this is blood in the anterior chamber of the eye, which can lead to glaucoma. Signs include blindness, blurred vision, and eye pain, but the physical exam is usually pretty telling. Thanks so much for that. I did a rotation on oculoplastics and operating in and around the eye is mildly terrifying. Um, I could never have been an ophthalmologist. So now moving away from the eye, which is my least favorite part of the craniofacial injuries, um, to nasal bones and NOE fractures. So nasal bone fractures are some of the most common uh, fractured bones when we're seeing craniofacial trauma. In terms of acute treatment for nasal bone fractures, there really isn't any indications for acute treatment of the fracture itself. However, on initial exam, you do need to look and make sure that there's not a septal hematoma associated with uh, nasal bone injuries. Uh, because septal hematomas, if they are left undrained, can cause pressure necrosis to the septal cartilage. So those do need to be drained um, immediately. As far as subacute treatment for nasal bone fractures, if there's marked edema, which there generally is when patients present with nasal bone fractures, you can wait to do a closed reduction for three to five days and up to about two weeks. Um, and during this time, you essentially do closed nasal bone uh, reduction with a nasal pyramid. Uh, and you splint the nasal pyramid. In terms of delayed treatment, so if someone is presenting to you a month or so out from their injury and they are concerned that they had a nasal bone fracture, you would then need to wait for the bones to set, reperform osteotomies to reset the nasal bone injury and uh, repair the defect. However, just to note, osteotomies should not be performed in the acute setting because they can uh, lead to nasal bone collapse or nasal collapse. Now moving on to NOE fractures, which are obviously much more complex fractures um, and much more rare than just straight up nasal bone fractures. So the definition of an NOE fracture is a fracture of the confluence of the nasal bones, the maxilla, and the frontal orbital bones. The bones involved generally include the nasal bones, the inferior orbital rim, the ethmoid, the nasomaxillary buttress, and the maxillary frontal process. Uh, in terms of physical exam, patients with NOE fractures typically present with telecanthus, which is widening of the um, distance between the two medial canthi. A distance of greater than 35 millimeters is suggestive of an NOE fracture. Patients oftentimes also present with a depressed nasal bridge or upturned tip due to lack of support from the nasal bones and can also present with epiphora due to injury to the medial canthus and the um, uh, tear, tear ducts. In terms of diagnosis, generally we get CT scans on all of our maxillary facial uh, patients or patients who we think have maxillary facial injuries. 
In terms of repair of NOE fractures, there are several goals of repair. Uh, the first goal is repair of rigid fixation of the nasal pyramid, restoration of nasal height and length, restoration of tip projection related to the nose, septal reduction and reconstruction, and lateral nasal wall augmentation. In terms of the classification system that we discussed when talking about NOE fractures, the um, common one or most common one we cite is the Markowitz-Manson classification system. This is in regards to the fracture pattern and the medial canthal tendon. So a Markowitz-Manson type one is a single central fragment or single central fragment or fracture segment with minimal displacement and no disruption of the medial canthus. Type two is comminution of the central bony fragment with attachment of the medial canthal tendon to a large bony segment. Management of type one and type two injuries. Um, generally, you would consider nasal dorsal support and plate fixation, but there's no need for medial canthal reconstruction because the medial canthal tendon is inherently still attached to a large bony fragment. For type three injuries, this is an injury that includes comminution of the bones with avulsion of the medial canthal tendon from a large bony segment. So therefore, in management of these patients, you need to reconstruct the medial orbital wall. Um, oftentimes have to use bone grafts uh, because of the degree of comminution of the bony injury, and then have to perform transnasal wiring of the medial canthus in order to correct uh, the telecanthus at presentation. Just as a side note, the medial canthal tendon consists of three limbs. Uh, one is a prominent anterior limb that inserts medially on the anterior lacrimal crest. Two is a thinner posterior limb that attaches to the posterior lacrimal crest. And three is a vertical limb of fascia that inserts on the medial orbital rim to the nasal frontal suture. In terms of postoperative complications from NOE fracture reduction, obviously it can be um, under reduction of telecanthus, under uh, fixation of the nasal bone support. Uh, but one of the common things patients complain about is epiphora or tearing. Generally, you can observe the lacrimal system and in about 90% of patients, they'll see improvement over time as the swelling decreases. Okay. Now let's talk about ZMC fractures and the zygomatic arch. So we'll start a bit with, uh, with a little bit of anatomy. We, we can talk about the facial buttresses, which are basically the kind of strength anatomical points of the facial skeleton. Now, usually these are split into two categories, vertical and horizontal. For the vertical buttresses, there's a nasomaxillary, there's a zygomaxillary, there's a pterygomaxillary, and then um, there's the posterior mandibular ramus and the condyle. And these are the, but the vertical buttresses. In regards to the horizontal buttresses, there's the frontal, the zygomatic, the maxillary, and the mandibular buttresses, um, as well as the mandibular arch. In regards to an isolated zygomatic arch fracture, if it's non-displaced, you observe it. But if it's displaced, there are a few um, approaches to talk about. So there's the Gillies approach in which you dissect down through the deep temporal fascia to the temporalis muscle and then pass elevator bluntly to the arch. There's the Keen approach, which is an intraoral approach to the zygomatic arch. And these approaches, ultimately, what you do with them is reduce the fractures. And then in regards to the some reduction tips, for displaced fracture of the zygoma, you use the lateral orbital wing or the greater wing of the sphenoid as a guide. So it is least likely to be comminuted. Now, talking about the ZMC, 
For its anatomy, the buttresses that are involved are the zygomaticofrontal, the zygomaticomaxillary, the zygomaticotemporal, and the zygomaticosphenoidal. Pearl is a reduction and fixation. So use a lateral orbital wall as a set point for reduction. Um, you can achieve stable fixation with ZF, ZM, and the inferior orbital rim. For the orbitozygomatic complex, this typically break in downward cant, depressed and rotated laterally due to lateral campus and unopposed pull of the masseter. Something to note, enophthalmos is associated with inadequate reduction of the ZM suture most frequently. And ZMC fractures without good reduction typically have concomitant NOE fractures that must be reduced first. For a larger than two centimeter defect in the orbital flora after reduction of ZMC, this necessitates repair. And you do this eight weeks out from ZMC fracture, which would require a Lefort 1 osteotomy and MMF to address the malocclusion. Um, so now speaking of some of the Lefort fractures, um, these are the most complex fractures that we take care of, and they're defined as panfacial injuries. So kind of the, when we say the facial smush injuries. So panfacial fractures have a 10% risk of concomitant cervical spine injuries. So whenever a patient comes in with very complex or comminuted maxillary facial injuries, you do need to look for C-spine injuries as well. Moving on to Lefort fractures. So the definition of Lefort fractures are uh, pan-facial fractures are what we refer to as those facial smush injuries. Notably, pan-facial fractures do have about a 10% risk of concomitant cervical spine injuries. So that is something that you need to look out for and image in patients that do present with complex craniofacial injuries. In terms of the classification system for Lefort fractures, all true Lefort fractures involve the pterygoid plates. So that is something that you need to look at on the CT scan. However, oftentimes we refer to a Lefort type fractures, which do not include the pterygoid plates, but otherwise are very similar in fracture pattern. So Lefort one fractures, these involve the, these are maxillary sinus fractures involving the medial and lateral buttresses. Lefort two fractures involve fractures of the NOE complex orbital floor and infraorbital rim and zygomaticomaxillary buttresses. And Lefort three fractures involve the NOE orbital floor, zygomaticosphenoidal articulation, lateral orbital wall, zygomaticofrontal buttresses, and zygomatic arch. So if you think of the Lefort fractures, you essentially move up the face. Lefort one fractures are uh, displacement of the lower uh, part of the maxilla from the upper part of the face. Lefort two fractures go kind of right across up the nasal bones and then back down the nasal bones. And then Lefort three fractures kind of go right across the eye level. In terms of principles of fixation for panfacial fractures, in patients that have fractures of both the maxilla and the mandible, in general, you reduce and fix the mandible first to establish posterior height. You also reduce the mandible first in order to establish a stable base from which to rebuild the rest of your uh, bony fractures off of. And then uh, you generally have to reestablish pre-traumatic maxillomandibular occlusion to prevent bite issues postoperatively when reducing the rest of your maxillary fractures. As far as some other craniofacial maxillary topics, um, everyone's favorite topic, teeth, is something we do get tested on, unfortunately. And I am aware that none of us are dentists, but um, this is something we apparently need to know about. So in terms of tooth anatomy, the dentin is the outer layer, which protects the pulp. Um, the inner part of the tooth is the root and consists of outer cementum and inner dentum and the pulp. 
in terms of presentations of tooth injuries, uh, generally sensitivity to cold and pain is due to exposed dentum and uh, the tooth can become infected. So the treatment for that is placing a cap. Injury to the pulp ultimately requires removal of the tooth because the tooth is no longer viable. Uh, fracture of the alveolar bone, which stabilizes the teeth, requires arch wiring. Things that we do get uh, tested on are um, some cysts and infections surrounding the tooth. So uh, periapical cysts are the most common odontogenic cysts. And if the tooth becomes non-viable, if it's infected and therefore you remove it, it generally presents as a radiolucency on x-ray. Um, and a detigerous cyst is a cyst that forms on top of an un unerupted tooth and can oftentimes form on top of the wisdom teeth, wisdom teeth if they're unerupted. Moving on to a topic that we um, interact with a lot more commonly is cranioplasty. Uh, generally, cranioplasty is used to cover large calvarial defects and is oftentimes following decompressive craniectomy. There are several different materials used, including hydroxyapatite, which is contraindicated in radiated fields and not recommended in the pediatric population and has a much higher rate of complications when used in the frontal sinus area, such as infection. Uh, methyl methacrylate has also been used in the past. It has a high compression strength. It's exothermic. Uh, so when you place it, it actually heats up. It is um, pretty low cost, but it does not um, allow for ingrowth of tissue into the methyl methacrylate and therefore can be more acceptable to infection. Peak implants are polyether ether ketone. Um, are great implants to use because they oftentimes can be prefabricated to fit the defect. However, infection is the most common complication. And finally, we use uh, most commonly titanium implants or titanium meshes for cranioplasty. In terms of other kind of skull fracture type um, topics, one thing to note is that, or one thing we do get tested on is skull fractures with dural lacerations in children can be developed into something called a growing skull fracture skull laceration, essentially the dura um, continues to grow in between the fracture segments as the child grows so that the fracture actually becomes worse over time. Um, and finally, just some miscellaneous trauma information. Um, when we do have trauma patients that present to the emergency room, one of the things that we do get tested on of all the trauma topics that the in-service could possibly choose to test us on. They do test us on the massive transfusion protocol. Uh, this is a transfusion of FFP and packed red blood cells at a one-to-one -one ratio, and you discontinue crystalloids in these patients. So really what the change has been over the last 10 to 20 years is that we no longer start with crystalloids in a bleeding patient. We begin with blood, um, and we do deliver the blood via a rapid transfuser and blood warmer. And again, the biggest thing is that you're delivering FFP and PRVCs at a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, and then supplementing that with cryoprecipitate as patients develop coagulopathies with their massive transfusion. And finally, one random question that somehow always shows up on the in-service is how to treat tracheostomy scars after trauma. Um, so tracheostomy scars get treated with scar excision, and then you reapproximate the strap muscles in order to prevent the dimpling at the tracheostomy. So with that, that is a uh, overview of maxillofacial injuries. There is another podcast on mon mandibular fractures and injuries and treatment of mandibular um, trauma. And that will give you kind of a full overview of craniofacial trauma care. Thanks so much for joining us. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. 
Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.